I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I am with Shireen Williams, who is the Chief Executive of the Local Democracy and Boundary Commission for Wales. But Shireen has a very interesting um, personal history. So, Shireen, you're actually from Singapore originally, aren't you? Yeah. Tell us a bit about your um, bringing up. Yep. So, I am the only one of my family members, uh, of my immediate family, that's here in Wales. I'm true blue Singaporean, born and brought up in Singapore. My family and I, we lived in Brunei for about three, four years, when I was very young. And in 2004, I met a Welshman. I got married to him in 2005 and moved over here to Wales. So I've been here for just under 15 years. I think there was some story, wasn't there, about... You'd gone to see your aunt in Swansea or Uh, something. Oh, yes. (laughs) I'd gone to see a cousin in Swansea, and she wanted to introduce me to somebody... I wasn't interested in being introduced to anyone. I was still, I was in my, I think, second last year of university. I'd spent six months in Copenhagen on an exchange program. I was waiting for my mum and my godparents from Brunei uh, to come to London. And we were all going to be doing this little European tour. So she was like, oh, you know, I want to introduce you to somebody. That somebody came to the house. I didn't really meet that somebody. I tried to avoid it. You know, I was very stealth about it. About a week or so later, this somebody's older brother and the youngest brother came to visit my cousin and her kids, and I end up marrying the eldest brother. So that's how I end up here in Wales, yes. So Singapore is a very interesting country, as I discovered a few years ago when uh, I was there with my wife and daughter for a, a wedding. Yeah. And we spent a very interesting and very pleasant week there and found that it's a very varied country, actually. Mm-hmm. Lots of different districts and lots of things to see. Uh, but one of the interesting facets of it from an educational point of view is that the standards are exceptionally high, aren't they? And it's largely modelled on, well, the, the British education yes, system, isn't it? Yeah. From my personal experience, is that I think if you don't start in that system, it can be quite challenging to join halfway through. It puts a lot of pressure on academic uh, achievements. My upbringing was quite typical in terms of there was my parents expected a certain level of academic uh, achievement from myself and my siblings. So you have quite a set pattern. You know, you go to primary school, you have exams age 12, which is a national exams, and then you get streamlined. So you pick your secondary schools based on your results at age 12. So you can imagine how that works when you've got sort of the best schools taking the best students and then they produce the best GCSE results. And then you decide whether you go for a you go for your A-levels or you go for a diploma or you go for to a technical institute and then there's routes to university and it can be quite pressurising. Kids start tuition quite young so and enrichment classes. So there's a lot of pressure on families to pay a lot of money for that. How did you cope yeah. with that then? I just got on with it. I, I think I just got <laughs> on with it. I have probably, what, is it eldest child syndrome there? I'm the eldest child. I'm the only daughter. I've got three younger brothers. So I think there was an expectation by my parents that I would be setting the standard. I always tease the rest of my siblings about never ever being as good as I am. I think I just pretty much got on with it. My mum's quite a pragmatic person. She says, look, if you're struggling in certain areas, she'll get me extra help. But in the areas that she thought I was coping, she said, why would I want to pay money for you to be learning something that you already know? Oh, there we go. And in due course, you went to study accountancy. Yes, just like my mother. So I didn't give this too much thought. Sometimes people still get shocked when they ask me what I studied. And I say, oh, I did accounting. They're like, what? You're so not the accounting type. This is how much thought I gave to it. I was going to go to college to pick my A-levels results. And I was going to go to university because what you do at A-levels will determine what 
courses you're eligible to go for in university in Singapore. They're quite particular about those things like your uh, GCSE subjects, your A-levels, etc. There's a path that you need to follow. I thought, what can I do that's not going to give me too much trouble? And if I had problems, I'd have easy access to help and support. My mother's an accountant. So that was how I gave it a lot of thought and decided I was going to do accountancy. Simply because I thought I could just ask my mum for help. It didn't really work out quite like that because every time I asked for her help, she says, why are you studying all this? You won't need this in the working world. Which was not helpful when you're trying to do a paper or submit an assignment. So I think... Had you finished your studies when you met your husband or wife? No, or? I didn't. I yeah. was in my another year to go, so I met him. It was a bit of a whirlwind romance. We sort of decided that we were meant for each other after about a week or so. But, you know, we were quite practical about it. You know, he's an eldest child, I'm an eldest child. We're like, you can't rush into this. My mum was going to come over anyway, so I said when I um, when she landed at the Heathrow airport, I sat her down and said, I've got some news for you. And she said, what? I said, oh... I've met somebody and I think he's the one. And um, my parents always had the rule. They didn't want to meet any of my boyfriends until it's the one. And she stayed. My, my parents always said, we don't want to waste our time getting to know people <laughs> that aren't going to be in your lives permanently. So she's, my parents' rule was, once you've met the person you want to marry, then you introduce him to us and we'll take care of all the arrangements. So when I told my mum, she was like, oh, I think you're too young. Because I, I think I was 20 maybe back then. And I did conveniently point out that she did marry my father when um, she was about the same age. So, okay, I said, look, meet him first. And if you think it's a really bad idea, then okay. I told her that I'd think about it. If she thought it was a bad idea, introduced her to Owain and she was happy with my choice. The big problem was my father. He was still, he was in Singapore. He didn't come on the trip because he doesn't like long flights. So my husband actually got interviewed by my godfather, the, probably the only other man in the world my father would trust with the decision, you know, about who's going to marry his daughter. So um, I remember we were in London then in Brunei House where we were staying and yeah, my husband had to answer very difficult questions from my godfather. There we go. But he obviously passed the he test. He passed the test. There were some threats made to, by my godfather, but, but it all worked out in the end. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So you came over to Wales. Yep. And I think maybe you were in Swansea for a little while, but did you, you moved to Newport because your husband got a job in Bristol. Yes. So what were you then doing? I mean, you obviously came to a place which is entirely different from Singapore. It was um, cold, Singapore. it was wet, and th- I thought it would have been easy because I moved here over in August. So it was, was meant to be a summer, but typical Welsh summer. I moved, and I really, despite being here for 15, almost 15 years now, I still struggle with the cold. My husband calls me a heat thief. I go around and just hot water bottles, and he's quite hot in general, his body temperature, so I'd be like, oh, give me your feet, I'm just really cold mm-hmm. all the time. It was, it was really hard because even though the language wasn't an issue, I grew up in such a small place in an environment where it's very family-oriented, where, you know, my extended family was in and out of my, you know, I was very close to my cousins and all sorts, and I knew where everything was, I knew where the buses, which buses go where, the trains, I knew that was my home. And to move here and not knowing where I was going and everything at that point in time just looked the same. The streets of Swansea all just looked the same to me. And I was, I'd be worried about going up for a walk on my own and not being able to find my way back. So mm. it mm. was hard. And um, even though I'd spent six months on, in Copenhagen away from my family, for me that was you know, six months of really having lots of fun and partying with my international co- uh, you know, student friends. I knew I was going home. So um, it was that no, I'm not going home. Like, this has to be home now. So there was the element of being homesick. And um, so my husband actually ended up getting me volunteering to try and cope with some of that homesickness. What sort of volunteering did you do? So uh, he was involved with a youth group in Swansea that needed a treasurer. 
So before I even got here, he'd already volunteered me to be their treasurer. He's like, well, like, oh, they're like oh, we need a treasurer. He's like, I may know somebody who's got a, a background in accountancy. So um, that's how I, I sort of started getting involved in, I would say, you know, the uh, community sector here in Wales. What happened then in terms of uh, your I, sort of developing? In so the I thought I would want to get a job in uh, accountancy in Singapore. Um, if you want to book for one of the big four um, accounting firms, you needed to have an accounting degree. They rarely ever took anyone outside their that circle of students. So usually, in your last six months in university, the big firms would be you know whining and dining you, trying to get you to to agree to join them before you even graduate. Obviously, it was slightly different here. So I did I did apply for a couple of jobs, and uh, I went for interviews and things like that. And I didn't have a driving license back then. And for one of the interviews, I said, look, get your driving license and, you know, come back again next year. You've passed sort of the interviews, etc. But in the meantime, I continued with more volunteering. So I started getting involved in interfaith work and the youth group just initially to just kill time, really. And I realised, actually, number one, I quite enjoyed it. And... I suppose, unlike Singapore, where career paths are usually quite carved up from a very early stage of your life, it was much more flexible over here. I could, you could live and make a decent living to support your life working in the, you know, in the community sector, in the third sector. So that's how I then got involved working for BME organisations and that sort of went from there, really. Yeah. Now, of course, BME organisations... You're a Muslim, uh, of course, but there are different kinds of Muslims Mm -hmm. and there are some people, some women in particular, Mm. who live in very difficult circumstances and I know that, you know, there is a lot of coercive control that goes on within such families. How did you approach that sort of issue? I actually have to say, a lot of the things that happened in, you know, what I would describe in families here where honour, you know, is used as a control mechanism... Um, it wasn't something that I was used to. I wasn't brought up with that. So in the circles that I moved in, I found there was a lot of you know religious conservatism, which I didn't grow up with in Singapore. I mean, you know, my my family, you know, we're practicing Muslims, but issues around things like handshaking, gender interactions, it was never on an issue growing up or on my radar. Even simple things like access to mosques. The first time I wasn't allowed in a mosque was here in Wales because of my gender. I was so shocked. I mean, I remember thinking where have I moved to? What kind of backward place is this? And if you think about the... A little bit weird, because you're moving from the east to the west, yet there is a building in a city which won't let me in simply because I'm a woman. How extraordinary. And I come from a country where... I remember when I went back to Singapore after a few years here, I was I went to the mosque because we, I attended an event with my husband and we went to the mosque, and I kept walking around the building trying to find the woman's entrance... So this lovely elderly gentleman stopped me and says, you know, he spoke to me in Malay, says, what are you looking for? Why are you walking around this place? And I said, I'm looking for the women's entrance. And he just said, there's only one entrance. It's that entrance where everybody's going in and out from. And I thought, you know, how much just being here has changed how I perceive certain things. Yeah. So, you know, I had to learn about things like honour, cursive control, things like that after moving here and interacting with Muslim families here and spending a lot of time with volunteering with the Hannah Foundation, where we specifically help Muslim families um, dealing with the impact of such behaviour. How extensive would you say such um, behaviour is? Now, my perspective is coming from somebody who ends up having to deal with it on a regular basis, so it's quite a warped you know, view I might have of the community. What The optimist in me is hoping that it's a minority, 
but the pessimist in me because you know you deal with casework all the time and that's all you sometimes see for like months on end you seem to see it everywhere so i'm not sure i can give a very balanced view on whether it's you know prevalent or it's only a small minority how entrenched is this behavior then and how easy is it to change people's way of behaving about 10 15 years ago when i first started getting involved in this work a lot of the justification that was used to impose control um, on women in these in some of these communities and some of the families that we know they used culture as the control mechanism it's now morphed into using religion well misuse of religion and religious laws as a means of controlling that behavior now so i think it's changed quite a lot in terms of the justification that you know men and some women use to control other people so when you say culture you mean people would say this is our culture, lifestyle yeah, or yeah, whatever it's yeah. our, and know, this is how the way we do things yeah, this and that's is how it. our culture dictates you know but then that's now changed to well you know they use islam then as as the excuse and i'm thinking well you know islam is practiced in lots of different ways across the world i'm sure this doesn't really sit well with the ethos of the faith and i don't know about changing it i think i i don't even know whether we can really change people we can help support victims out of those situations but i'm not sure whether people will just whether it's human nature people will just find another another reason or another excuse to justify that type of behavior you know it's morphed from culture to religion i'm not sure what what's the next justification going to be and of course they're both they can both be very strong forces can't they yep. and for people to actually break free from that can be immensely difficult yeah definitely i mean you know for some people it's about having to say goodbye to everything you've known growing up you know your family members your community your networks and having to start afresh somewhere else and you know it gets lonely i'm a migrant to wales all my family in singapore and i've got a, what i would consider quite a rich life over here in terms of you know the experiences i have my social networks and it still gets lonely for me sometimes and i'm thinking if you've got to uproot yourself somewhere else so you you're, you're safe and you've got to cut everyone out if you meet people from similar backgrounds over there they'll ask oh, who's your family where do you come from etc and you connections are made so that's it's really really quite hard so when you're working for an organization um volunteering with an organization mm-hmm. like the Hella Foundation what can you hope to achieve in dealing with individuals is it do the individuals come to the organization and say look i'm in this difficult situation what can i do how can you help me yeah it's usually um you know people coming to us for help through word of mouth maybe you know a young uh, you know young girl's been helped by us from getting out of a very difficult situation she's got friends who are in similar situations she tells them they come to us and say can you help me i know you help my friend can you help me in a way and i think for me obviously the ultimate goal is to change society and communities but i think we've got to be quite practical it's about if you can help give somebody a better opportunity elsewhere or keep them safe that's really great you know i've always remember one particular young woman who was in a forced marriage we managed to get her out of it and a couple of years later she met the love of her life last time i met her last year she had two little girls and you know she introduced me to her husband and said oh this is the guy that i was telling you about back then and i met after i got to, you know after you got me out of that situation and i thought you know what that's good enough you know she's changed her life and those two kids i know she wouldn't put them in the same situation or she wouldn't let anyone put her children in the same situation that she found herself in a few years ago what's your perspective shireen on the issue of the the burqa and the niqab as a feminist I would defend a woman to wear whatever she wants to wear but I also understand we live in a very complex world right now there's lots of sensitivities everywhere I can imagine how some people would find 
not being able to see someone's face quite intimidating or quite scary, I wouldn't wear it on the basis that I would feel unsafe wearing it. I did it as for as an experiment a few years ago for a TV show and someone threatened to shoot me and I thought, uh, you know, I empathise with the women who have to who who choose to wear it and have to go through that kind of trauma every day because people are shouting things at you. But again, I would defend their right to wear it whether I agree or, or not or disagree with it. You know, it is a personal choice. What would you say about the prevalence or otherwise of racism in Wales? Well, I have given a lot of thought in the past few months particularly on actually not covering my hair anymore to try and remove one very visual thing about how different I am from most people on the streets as a safety issue. What is your um, uh, hair, hair covering called? Oh, so um, people describe it as, you know, hijab. I, I, would just, I just wear a turban because I used to wear the full scarf, not the face veil, the full scarf, and then I swapped to this and I have given a lot of thought on whether I feel this is required of me as a Muslim woman in this day and age. So there's a, there's a faith aspect to it and whether I think it's required or not. But there's also another aspect to it around safety, whether am I putting myself at risk when I'm walking out? I feel a lot more conscious about how I, I'm, I look different to other people. It just doesn't feel as nice as it did when I first moved here. How often do you encounter people shout at you? Or? It's subtle things. It's the way you get treated differently in shops or get spoken to. And it's just, you know, I remember when uh, the charge for the plastic bags came into force in Wales and I, I, can't, I was in West Wales somewhere on a little break with my husband and my my stepdaughter who wears a scarf a full scarf she does and this woman when I asked for a bag she says you do know it's there's a 10p charge and I'm like yes I know I've been living here for a very long time but it's also the perception that well you wouldn't know because you might be foreign my husband didn't say oh maybe I was being a bit sensitive about it but my stepdaughter who's mixed race she's like no no it wasn't that way so I think it's it's some of those more subtle things and I wonder as well with social media because you're reading more things online it makes you extra conscious about how sensitive things are out there I think there's also an, a, a complex issue around Wales not being representative of its citizens you know in its public institutions I'm a in terms of the meeting rooms I go to the public forums I go to and I'm thinking it's you know it's 20 what 2020 now and in, on so many occasions how is it I'm the only visible person of colour in that room. It's shocking. So what do you think Wales has to do to um, improve itself? Oh, I think it's got to stop thinking that things are great here. I think when you've got public leaders, I was in a meeting last year where somebody very senior in Wales stood up and said that, oh, it's better here in Wales than everywhere else. And I couldn't help myself. I just put my hand up and said, I'm sorry, not for people of colour, not for people who visibly look different, because we are conscious, even more conscious of how different we are now than we were 10, 15 years ago. It is not better. And, you know, I think people in this country, you know, they're, in general, they are quite welcoming. But I think sometimes we take that as, like, oh, don't worry, it's, it's much better here because we're all so welcoming. The thing we need to take stock and say, actually, not everything is well in Wales. Do we need to ask questions why... You know, our public institutions aren't reflective. Our leaders, you know, with my current role, I get to travel extensively and meet lots of elected members across um, across the country. We don't have diversity at all. I know that another matter that you've been very much involved with is combating terrorism, <laughs> and particularly Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. terrorism. How much of a problem do you see that as? I think it is a massive issue here in Wales. Um, 
I think it's a lot more prevalent than people realise what it is. I think we've got people in, our, in some of our communities who are actively encouraging people to separate themselves from the wider public and using the, that as an opportunity to feed really, really disturbing ideas. I think people aren't strong enough to challenge or push back. I think our leadership in the Muslim community isn't brave enough to call out such behaviour. The people who put themselves forward as leaders have not been strong enough in actually calling it out. I think sometimes, you know, you have to be unpopular. You have to deal with the fact that people will call you names and challenge your Muslimness. When I was working in um, counter-extremism uh, in my previous job, questions on whether I was a real Muslim was asked of me. Because apparently real Muslims won't, quote-unquote, dob another Muslim in. And I'm like, well, if somebody's planning to cause harm to other people, regardless of whether they're Muslim or not, I said, you know, you've got to safeguard that person and the people around them. Do you think that in some respects there has been a hesitancy on the part of the white community, if you like, to, to take it on? I've got to be very careful here. I'm married to a white man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a broad-minded <laughs> white man, <laughs> Um... Um, because of the, you know uh, being worried about being accused of um, Islamophobia or racism, I think we've got to be brave about having very difficult conversations. I think we avoid difficult conversations and have all the nice dinners and all the nice discussions and tea and biscuits. And actually, I think we should have difficult conversations because it's okay to disagree. We don't have to always get along. I think you know, is it diversity is the spice of life, and that's okay. You know, you may fundamentally disagree on a certain thing. But will that stop you from being friends with each other or respectful to one another? Um, you know, I've been involved in Muslim-Jewish programs when it's Radio Salam Shalom in, in, uh, in Bristol, and we had some very difficult conversations. You know, there's lots of things that are always happening in the Middle East. Um, we've had situations where board members have walked away because they felt the other side weren't strong enough in their condemnation, etc. But I also am conscious that I can't fix the Middle East the 10 people around that table years ago, we, could, we wouldn't be able to fix the problems in the Middle East. There's no way in hell we'd be able to do that. But actually, the 10 of us could create something really positive where we are. And it's about actually having the trust in each other that we can sit around the table, we can disagree, and say, OK, how do we move on from this? And I think we don't do that enough here. I don't think we say, all right, you know, you've got somebody in, in your place of worship that's describing Christians or Jews a certain way. What are you going to do about it? Because you're a leader. What's your view on the question of, shall we say, maintaining a degree of separation and assimilation? So from a faith perspective for me, my stance is, if God wanted to make us all the same, he would have done it a long time ago. I think it's good that we're different. That's how we learn from each other. And I think life would be very boring if everybody was the same. I think there's certain things that we should hold strong to each other, like respect, honesty. There's some values which would bind us together as as you know, as, as human beings, as a community, but I think it's okay to be different. I grew up in Singapore. We're all, you know, we've got lots of different communities there, but what binds us together is actually our national identity. I, I, you know, if I see another Singaporean, I, you know, whether it's Chinese, Chinese Singaporean, Indian, or whatever, I will feel an instant bond to them because we are fellow citizens. And I think maybe that's what we should be looking at. That if when we talk about assimilation. I don't have to eat the same things as you and drink the same things as you or live my life the same ways as you, but I can have that commonality of, look, this is our land, this is who we are, this is our people. We've got to make sure we, you know, we stand together because if we don't, there's nothing to leave for our children. Now, I know that you've got a couple of young children. Yeah, and, I do. Um, you've, you've sent them to Walsh Medium School. Yes. Why did you do, do that? I think 
I'm gonna blame my husband for this one. Um, he's a very patriotic Welshman, and when I met him, we spoke lots about you know identity and language, and um, and I thought, yeah, why would you not want to speak the language of your country? So that wasn't a very difficult decision for me for me to make it to agree with that. But also, this is where the Singaporean mother in me comes out. Back then, when my eldest son started school, the class sizes were really small. She was the one, the first few uh, batches of student in his in his primary school in Newport, and it was a no brainer really. I'm like, oh my god, you get to learn an extra language that you'll be fluent in. You get a small class size. Well, there we go. Then I thought I don't think it was that difficult a decision to make, and it's been really really beneficial for them. Yeah. Have you done a course? I have. I did. Um, I start and stop. That's the problem I've got. I start something and then work changes and then that gets disrupted. But I do, I understand a lot more than I think I speak because sometimes when people have conversations, I'm like, I know what you've just spoken about. And my youngest child is determined that I will one day speak Welsh. <laughs> so he does teach me some words. So I teach him some Malay words. So we've got an exchange going on in the house. So I teach, to, I teach, I teach him a bit of Malay and he teaches me a bit of Welsh. Yes, yeah, so we have a discussion on what things are called in different languages. Now, a year or so ago, you got a new job, uh, yes. the one that you're doing now, yes. which is a bit different from that kind of community oh, it's work, isn't it? completely different. What made you go for this job? <laughs> I've been working in local authority dealing with cohesion, equalities, all these things for about 10 years. And I was also a community activist, and it was really exhausting, coming to point where it was quite tiring to be eating, living and breathing social justice constantly. If a terror incident took place somewhere else... I wouldn't be able to have a real, a real good think about it. The first thing I would think, if it happened at night, I'd be like, tomorrow, who have I got to call in the morning to have a conversation about community relations? Um, what kind of briefing note have I got to prepare for the leader, etc.? All these things, instead of actually sitting there and, you know, and being able to feel quite human about it and being upset. Um, so when this opportunity came up, I thought, why not? Let's give it a shot. It all sort of worked out. I was quite surprised when I, I got offered the role, really. I remember sitting in the first meeting and thinking, oh my God, what have I done? But... It's been about a year. It's been, I've had my one-year anniversary now. I'm really enjoying the work. I work with some really brilliant people. I actually find the work really interesting. In the last 12 months, I've seen more films than I've did in the past 15 years. Hmm. So there we go. So the, the role itself as chief executive for this organisation yeah. is basically bound what was known as a boundary commission, isn't it? Yes. So what you have to do, what your staff have to do, is to work out where boundaries should be drawn for local government and for... Uh, well, so we've got, there's two aspects to this role. One is for the local government element, where we look at each local authority and we help carve out or develop electoral wards that provide electoral parity for each local authority area. So that's one half. The other half is that um, the body also doubles up as the Boundary Commission for Wales, which is responsible for the parliamentary constituencies. So we should be kick-starting our next programme of parliamentary reviews next year. Because I remember going to a press conference a few years ago okay in the old office, which would have been yes. in Southgate House. Yes, somewhere by there, I remember, before they moved here. Yes. That's right. And at that time, there was the proposal to reduce the number of MPs yes. in Wales, down from 40 to 29 or 30. 29, 29 I, think, I think yes. it was, wasn't it? Now, we know, don't we, that there was a lot of toing and froing in the last parliament because there wasn't an overall majority and therefore it all sort of got put on ice, didn't it? Yes. But officially, I think it is still perhaps due to go ahead, although they'd have to have a vote in parliament for it to go um, ahead now, wouldn't they? From, well, I can't comment on what the Prime Minister's plans no. are, but we are preparing to start a new review as per the cycle for next year. And that will be from scratch, will it? It will be from scratch. Right. Yeah. So what you do is you assess 
how many people are or where people are living and then the aspiration is to have constituencies which are roughly the same is that the idea equal equal size of electors yeah so um it all depends the number of mps wills would be allocated it all depends on whether you know the prime minister and his colleagues decide on whether they want to stick at 650 or 600 or a different number and then we will then do the maths and figure out what does that work out to how many electors per member of parliament would that work out to and then we apply how many electors we've got here in Wales and we start the very very interesting process of asking people what they want well we'll drop our first draft and then we'll ask people what they think of it and make the adjustments from there because it can be quite controversial can't it oh my god yes I'll have I'm expecting petitions, angry letters, emails, all sorts coming through. But with the other stuff that you've been involved with previously, <laughs> oh, I'll be like, this cake. is nothing. I said, you know, if you've never had your faith challenged, we've had things like, um, because my husband previously worked in counter-extremism as well, we've had people ask us if we were really married. Like, what are the chances? Maybe the government put you there. Are your children really your own? Really? As yeah. if you were some sort of undercover like, oh, yes, people? Yes, yeah. Wow. So if I can deal with that, I'm thinking a couple of hundred angry letters... I can take it on the chin. Yeah. yeah. So what you're doing, what work are you doing at the moment in terms of preparing? Can you prepare really until you know exactly? No, where we can't. Go? I mean, we, we we're working closely with cabinet office colleagues, obviously, around getting new commissioners in. We can do all sort of the prep work beforehand, looking at the policies, the program, etc. But until we get uh, direction from cabinet office on numbers and how it's all going to work, we'll. We, we, we wait and we continue with our work um, for the electoral reviews because we're completing a programme of reviewing of all of our 22 local authorities. We've got to complete that by uh, August of next year. We've just submitted our 12th final recommendation, so we've got we've still got work left to do on that one. But that's all based on the premise that there will continue to be 22 local authorities. Again, it is, not, it is for the politicians to decide should there wish to be 22 local authorities. I know nothing. <laughs> Shireen Williams, I don't think that's quite true, but uh, <laughs> thank you very much. No worries, thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.